If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Matt Taylor is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. It is the first weekend of the summer of 2023. Break out the turtle pool. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CH Mountain Hill. I'm hearing an echo here. Matt, can you cut out one of the fees? Uh, 900 CH Mellon Hamilton, thank you. 980 CFPL in London. Uh, playing the Beatles today, paperback writer. Reason being, listen to this. On this day, 1966, the Beatles had their 10th number one, 10th consecutive number one single with paperback writer backed with rain which 45 was on the flip side. The track is marked by a boosted bass guitar sound throughout, partially in response to John Lennon demanding to know why uh, the bass on certain Wilson Pickett records far exceeded that on any Beatles record. So it was cut louder than any other Beatles record and added a new piece of equipment used in the mastering process. (laughs) There you go. Now you know the rest of the story. Uh, Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. Uh, You can join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Love to hear from you on that as well. Lots going on uh, in the world. Uh, hey, uh, home opener, game day today in the Hammer. Tie Cats and Montreal tonight, Tim Hortons Field. Uh, talk about that with Radley coming up a little later on in the show. Also, uh, the continuing story, the recovery used to be a search effort. Now a recovery effort continues for that submersible uh, near the Titanic. Sad now when you're hearing uh, people talk about it and experts saying this was avoidable, uh, it was not certified, it was unsafe, should have never happened. So we'll see where that goes uh, moving forward. Again, uh, this uh, submersible, not really a sub, not really a ship, so it fits it's into a gray category, uh, which is how they sort of got away with what they did without really having anything approved. That story will come out as the investigation continues. Uh, Google saying, and like Facebook and Instagram and all the rest, uh, blocking Canadian news from Canadian users, or users rather, uh, because of Bill C-18. Uh, money, money, it's always about the money. Uh, but it will affect what you see on your uh, social media play, uh, pages. What else we got? Oh, uh, this is big, and, and coming up a little later on, we're going to have Education Minister Stephen Lecce talk about this. Uh, he's coming on at 5.35 this afternoon, after the 5.30 news. And cursive writing is being reintroduced into the Ontario school system uh, coming up this fall for grade threes and then it will go on from there which um you know it's funny because this story isn't gaining a lot of news uh i I think there's a cohort of the student population of which my kids are in that uh whether you know this or not they stop teaching cursive they stop teaching writing kids how to write penmanship all of that stuff and i remember very very uh, vividly when this happened because my kids were in this age group so uh here's the article and we'll talk to Stephen lecce about it coming up a little later on cursive is coming back relegated in 2006 uh the elementary school system uh made it optional eventually it was just dropped cursive writing is returning as part of the 
mandatory curriculum in September, said uh, Stephen Lecce, who said it's about more than just teaching students how to write their own name. Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding me? Uh, the quote, the research has been very clear that cursive writing is a critical life skill in helping young people to exp express more substantively, to think more critically, and to ultimately express more authentically, he said in an interview. And that's what we're trying to do to create a very talented generation of young people who have mastered the fundamental skills, reading, writing, and math that are the foundations of any successful, productive life in the in in any country. Ontario's new language curriculum curriculum set to take place uh, next year. And uh, uh, it introduced a host of changing, including a renewed focus on phonics. Many of the curriculum additions can be traced back to a last report uh, last year from the Ontario Human Rights Commission, which said the province's public education system was failing students with reading disabilities and others by not using evidence-based approaches. And I remember when this happened back in the McGinty days. Remember, McGinty was the teacher's prime minister. They knew everything, the new math. Where the hell did that go? And it was dropping cursive because we were all coming into this digital world. They don't need to sign their name. Well, it's not about signing their name. When you learn to write, you learn how to express yourself. You learn grammar, phonics. You learn uh, how to read. It's just, it's literacy. It's just part of literacy. And just because you're punching numbers or, or letters in with your thumbs, that doesn't necessarily uh, uh, reinforce the same sort of, uh, of, 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 of lesson that you get while writing. And it's more than, you know, a, a teenager who, when asked to sign a birthday card, uh, it looks like it's from a grade three student. It's beyond that. It's what you learn while you're, you're learning basic, basic language fundamental skills. A return to phonics and, for example, cursive writing is another example where the government is leaning into the evidence and the following the voice of many parents who wanted us to really embrace those practices that have worked for generations. The curriculum reintroduces cursive writing in grade three, uh, and that's welcome news for language education experts. I think it's long overdue, uh, says one. Uh, the cursive should never have been taken out of the curriculum in the first place. There isn't any research specifically on cursive writing, uh, but the work that has been done shows that it not only teaches students the skill of writing that's script in and of itself, but helps to reinforce overall literacy. That includes reading. That includes enunciation. All of that. And the more that young writers, beginning writers, are, are using their hands, they're using other, uh, uh, other forms of, of writing and such, this is just the basic framework for anything. So again, I, I'm so happy to see this coming back because my kids were part of the generation who missed out on this. I think my daughter, we were just talking about it today, uh, it took it for a year and then that was it. It was gone. And you know, we say, oh, we got computers now, we got the devices, so you're not going to need any of that. And, you know, now they can't sign a passport or a card or anything like that. And that's beyond technology. It's learning literacy, how to express oneself, structure. Sounds like an all request Friday to me. 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Great to have you here. There you go, Randy. Uh, you want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite? Well, get Matt on the phone, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after uh, the 5 o'clock news. Love to hear from you.
we, we've talked an awful lot on this show about the transition to renewable energy and uh, obviously electric vehicles. We know the auto industry in Ontario, what it means, but the, the, lots of chatter about beyond production, beyond all of that. Well, you know, we, we want to go from the minerals, getting it out of the ground and, and, and constructing the batteries right to uh, the final production. Where are we with that? Is it possible? What is the state of our mining industry? Let's bring in Craig Johnson, professor of political science at the university of guelph and is with us now karen thanks for uh thank you for the time hope you're doing well hi thanks for having me so what is the state of canada's mining industry we hear that it takes an awful long time to open a mine, and in many cases uh it's pretty evasive as is fossil fuel extraction what where where is canada's mining industry right now especially with these uh, minerals you know involving electric vehicle and battery and such Sure. Well, my main area of work is on on lithium, uh, which is indispensable in in just about every form of electric vehicle or or laptop computer or or cell phone. Uh, And Canada's production at at a global scale is is pretty minimal in that regard. It's uh, last year in 2022, uh, Canada accounted for about 0.4% of total production globally. Uh, That said, it's, it's trying to expand production right now in in Quebec and there's some experimental work uh going on in Alberta but but for lithium it's it's a fairly minor producer how many lithium mines are there um does china have one in manitoba or am i thinking of a different mineral china invest, invested in a mine in manitoba um and it it's um it's what's known as a spodumene mine so this is the hard rock that's used to extract lithium and it's been around for decades and, and was used originally, actually, in the production of Corningware. Um, mm. And only recently did it start getting into, into um, uh, extracting lithium uh, for uh, renewable energy and electric vehicles. But my understanding is that that's still at a pretty rudimentary stage. I think they've only just kind of revamped operations uh, recently. And from what I understand, that all goes to China. It's not staying in here. Um, so what? What? how close are we? How far? Because we hear we're rich in these minerals. Um, how long would it take to, to tap into this and make a noticeable difference, as you were speaking of? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, like uh, Canada's production of lithium, I guess, falls into two categories. One is sort of conventional, traditional um, open pit mining, which is... Uh, the kind that you see in in Manitoba and Quebec, and there are plans to to try to start mining lithium in in northern Ontario. Uh, the other kind is is something known as direct lithium extraction, and uh, uh, there it's it's still um, fairly experimental. Um, they're trying to uh, scale it up, I think you could say, in in Alberta, but it still remains fairly rudimentary. Uh, the open pit mining can take anywhere from five to seven years if you include approval and then all of the the geological survey work um, and then actually turning it into production. Um, the other major kind of, of lithium production is what happens in, in South America, which is one of the largest producing regions, uh, where you're essentially um, evaporating lithium out of these vast salt flats um, in parts of Chile and Argentina and uh, one day in parts of Bolivia. Um, but again, it's, that takes a long time too, and it's, it's quite uh, environmentally um, destructive, I think, for local watersheds and ecosystems. 
we hear that this is going to be the savior, not only economically, but certainly for the environment as well. But the more I hear about mining and lithium and what have you, it's a great idea that will never come to be or will take forever to come to be due to regulations. Can we actually make this work? I mean, I, I think uh, governments at different levels in, in Canada and certainly um, levels of government in countries where Canada trades, uh, i.e. the United States, are certainly creating lots of incentives right now to to both extract critical minerals um, and to turn these these critical minerals into valuable products and, and electric vehicles being one of the most uh, prominent ones right now. Uh, I'd say within Canada that the province that's probably doing the most in that regard is is Quebec, uh, where you see uh, both a strong commitment to to support extraction at the mine site. So the the government of Quebec, in fact, investing in the ownership of of mines uh, in uh, in a place called Namaska, but also a a really strong desire on the part of the provincial government to develop a, a Kind of downstream um, battery and electric vehicle manufacturing uh, industry uh, between uh, Quebec City and Montreal in a, a place called Bécancour. Uh What about fed- federal regulations on this? Quebec sort of its own entity in, in a sense. We hear that, and again, because fossil fuel extraction is hard on the environment, this can equally be as hard on the environment. Are we having this discussion? Are we having it open with people that are creating the regulations and such again we hear there's a lot of uh, of regulation and red tape that that slows this down at the federal level is that accurate to a degree i I think you're right that that every province um uh can assume responsibility over environmental impact assessments and in certain circumstances then the the federal government will will have oversight um it's uh I think um, one thing I would stress in in relation to other jurisdictions is that um, the the level of of transparency and scrutiny in Canada, I think, leaves a lot to be desired that that compared to the United States, for instance, and certainly even compared to places like Chile and Argentina, um, there isn't as much uh, scrutiny over over the regulatory process. And, And I think that's what sometimes causes delays it causes local conflicts and and unhappiness about even a proposed mine Carrie johnson with us professor of political science university of guelph talking about uh, mining lithium mining and uh, the future in and around uh, the transition into a renewable uh, economy thanks so much for the time and insight much appreciated be well thank you it is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. All requests Friday. Matt's waiting for yours, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. Uh, join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after uh, the 5 o'clock news. Love to hear from you. Uh, Parliament, uh, the House of Commons, all the politicians have gone home from uh, Ottawa and are off to do the barbecue circuit, as they say, where they get to hear from you about what is really going on. 
bursting out of the Ottawa bubble, uh, as they say. And uh, for many, uh, perhaps an end in Parliament is uh, couldn't come soon enough. For others, hey, what about all that stuff that was on the stove and boiling hot? Uh, are you just going to leave that there? Like the public inquiry, the whole Bernardo thing? What, 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 what happens with all that? Well, uh, here's hoping that over the summer you forget about it, I guess. Here's uh, here's Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you, Scott. So, again, Henry, lots on the stove at the end of this. And, you know, maybe I'm just a, a political junkie head here. So I'm, you know, I'm really fascinated in this stuff. And the average person doesn't give, uh, you know, a rat's rear end. But what about the public inquiry? We're still waiting for the Bernardo thing. How can how can you go and leave all this stuff on the stove boiling? Well, uh, you won't be surprised. I took a look at what uh, the information that's now being put out by MPPs and cabinet ministers. And it doesn't talk about any of those things. They talk about their themes in there as uh, how they've made life more affordable for people, uh, how they've invested in workers in the environment, how they've done some of affordable housing, and uh, money they spent on health. So they're not they're not talking about things that haven't been that that they haven't been solved. Put it that way. They've they've ta- this is a bread and essentially they're talking about bread and butter and how to, how to save people money. So, uh, obviously, the big question here after the end of this session, anything really uh, accomplished here? W- coming out the, the end, pros and cons, w- what stands out for you for the last year? Well, th- that, they're, that essentially they've co- concentrated on, as I said, bread and butter issues. So, for example, making life more affordable. You know, they have a, a grocery uh, rebate for people up to $500 who are eligible for it. They've... Uh, made a deal with Visa and MasterCard to lower fees on small businesses. Um, And then they have uh, eliminated uh, interest rates on Canada student loans, and uh, they're increasing Canada student loans. So that would be one aspect that they've put on. Then they talk about they've done uh, investing in workers and the environment, and essentially they funneled... uh, about you know about fifty million dollars into the community colleges like Mohawk to basically train people in certain type of jobs uh, that they need to you know that that are needed in industry right now. So that's 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 the second thing they've talked uh, when uh, about making things affordable. And they also talk about they have some housing projects around. So for example, they've uh, you know spent uh, uh, investing in Hamilton almost two two hundred million dollars on. Four different housing complexes. Many of them have, uh, I think, all of them have uh, accessible um, uh, units in them. So these, are, these are. This is obviously for the part for the government. These are good news stories, and they want people to pay attention to them. It sounds a lot like sunny ways, Henry. Why yeah. are people cranky? Eighty uh, percent want change. Um, if it's all great, are we paying attention to this? Well, their job is to go out. The government's job is going to be go out and tell people about these things. So that's when they're going or going around to the you know around to the barbecues and parties and all this stuff. That will be reminding all the things that uh, they've done, and generally, which the press doesn't pay attention to because it's not controversial. So generally, you know, press likes to follow controversial things, which is you know completely fair. Um, and so they don't want to talk about those unfinished things, and uh, they want to talk about how they're doing things for ordinary people and uh, they think that's uh, that's uh, that that's gonna, that's their ticket to another 
another term a couple of years down the road, I think. And that, that's, uh, that's what they're going to do. And they, they basically think people, that's what people are interested in. And so they're just going to tell people about that. So uh, There's telling people about it. Then there's a reality of what they're feeling. And, yeah. and again, many people are feeling, uh, everybody's feeling inflation, the cost right. of, uh, of living, everything. It's just, it, it's a lot harder now, whether you're young and starting out or even whether you're, you're, you're hitting retirement age or su- as such. So again, a lot of words. Is that resonating with Canadians? Well, I think I think the 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 whole thing is that the they have to go out and they rem, have to remind people this and keep punching it. And of course, in politics like this, you you have to continue the message over and over again. Yeah. You know, that this is what we've done, and they, they'll you know every every meeting they'll go to, every barbecue they go to, they will be saying these are the things we've done this yeah. year, and it's going to be mm-hmm. repetition. Now, one thing I would say, and I think it's been a surprise uh, when we had these uh, four uh, by elections that uh, came out. Um, basically, the, uh, the the happy ones were the liberals. Now, uh, the conservatives did win two of the seats that they had, but the, you know they they didn't do as well as they thought they were going to do. And the uh, and the liberals do vet, did better, and then the NDP didn't do very well. So they they actually feel they're on the right track, and they just got to keep sending out these messages to people, and um, you know uh, uh, the things will be better. And of course, we all expect. That they're going to do some uh, put up some some new ministers in front of us because uh, some of them are really you know in tatters right now. So uh, they'll, that's the that's the big thing that that you know they'll they'll come back in uh, September and say okay we got we got some new new people in the job and they're going to do a better job than the old people. <laughs> Uh, things like uh, the public inquiry, what have you, uh, is this going to all subside over uh, the summer, or will this just reignite in the fall? Do you think? Um, well, I think. Do you, you think, know, think, think, there, do you think a, a cabinet shuffle will do it for them? Well, I mean, they're going to get somebody who can speak to it better. I don't think the you know the the attorney general has really been, and I think most people would think this. He has not been very. Uh, Good in in talking about how how you know how the job how he's doing his job and how he's dealt with this and it, it's been a very apologetic because he's you know you know he just hasn't been doing things to deal with this and it's come out I think pretty clear and uh, you know there's blames to everybody else oh there were staff members who didn't let me know and uh, the bureaucrats and you know and then the, and that the security people get don't get along with the intelligence people and you know and that but uh, you know people don't really care about that they just see this guy is making excuses so i think uh, mm. i think i think they're going to want they're going to put up a new cast and and of course what they do in a summer like this is every person the prime minister thinks of keeping in his cabinet he's going to call him in and he says okay are you going to run the next time because they don't want to yeah. waste a um, a ministerial seat on somebody who's not going to be running 2 years from right. now so yeah, that's the point. first thing he's going to do but and, and other people who just shift around and and uh, you may not kick them out, but I'll send them to, you know, lesser important. Uh, it seems the, the prime minister has a communications issue. Uh, we've only got a few seconds left. Left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. It's, there's been many, many examples of that, whether it's Mendicino or, or any of this. Um, how do they fix that? Well, the problem, a real problem here is the, the staff has to recognize better what are real problems that the prime minister has to deal with. And I mean, too, I think there's just too much uh, for some of the staff. Uh, you know, it, there's just too much authority in their hands, and they look at this. Yeah. Oh, this is a bad. And I'll tell you a bad news story. And it, it, this is, I mean, this is very common where the the staff member wants to please the prime minister, and he knows that 
good star, good information, good stories uh, make the minister, prime minister feel good, and bad stories that he should be dealing with don't. Yeah. So, oh, and he's had these people in for a long time in his office, and they've just gotten used to feeding him good yeah. information, which is not good for him. <laughs> I mean, he, a, a leader like that needs to know what's going, what's going wrong and what's likely to go wrong, and he's got to get people in there who are going to come to him and say, listen, we've got a problem, and we've got to deal with it. Many say that's his job. Uh, Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, talking about the last session of Parliament. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Uh, same to you, Scott. Bye-bye. First weekend, summer of 2023. Lots going on throughout the city, uh, including the Fresh Up R&B Festival, taking over Mills Hardware, 95 King Street, uh, starting at 6 o'clock tonight, running through the weekend. To talk more about all of this, Lisa LaRocca with us, organizer of the Fresh Up R&B Festival, director of operations at Sonic Onion Rec- uh, Records. And with us now, Lisa, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. So tell us about what's going on this weekend at Mills Hardware. Yeah, so we've got uh, three days of uh, amazing R&B and some hip-hop talent, uh, all from Ontario. Um, We've got an amazing lineup, and uh, yeah, we're really excited about it. Talk about Mills Hardware. Talk about this venue and uh, how cool it is. (laughs) Yeah, Mills Hardware is a a great space um, that we run uh, through Sonic Onion. Um, It's a city-owned building. It's a beautiful uh, space in downtown that we've kind of, you know, outfitted to be a, a really great music venue. Um, we've got some murals on the walls. We've got a great sound system. It's a beautiful space to check out if you haven't been. And as far as the, you know, looking into this summer and planning events and what have you, obviously, uh, pandemic behind us, it's full, it's all systems go full throttle. You're off and running this season. Is that accurate? Yeah, we're seeing people come back to shows. Um, in pretty good numbers. Some people are still a little wary, but we're, we're seeing a return this year. And uh, some of our events, you know, we're seeing even greater attendance than, and, than prior to the pandemic. So it's really encouraging. So you, just, you do lots of stuff like this at Mills Hardware. Uh, talk specifically about this event, what you've got going, what starts tonight? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we have events running, you know, all year round, every weekend, weekdays at Mills. Um, this weekend, like I said, we've got R&B. So um, tonight, our headliners are Looney, Akila, and Adria Kane. Um, tomorrow night, uh, our headliners are Havaya Mighty and Omega Mighty. Um, and Sunday, we have Zach Zoya, Teddy, and Nanso Amadi. So all Ontario R&B talent, many of them nominated or Juno winners. Um, it's a really, really strong lineup, um, and it's going to be a really great festival. For those who have never been to this space, aren't aware of what you're doing, talk about some of the programming that you do run out of there. Yeah, so we have, you know, everything from um, local shows, local bands, a lot of great Hamilton talent comes through, a lot of Ontario um, level music uh, comes through, um, and, you know, a lot of just the really, you know, really big Canadian bands actually come through Mills and, and play some really great shows here and it's a great space to have an intimate um an intimate show and experience these bands in a in a really really cool setting um that you might you know see otherwise at much bigger and and less intimate venues so it's a really nice space um we also have theater program um theater programming private events we've had fashion shows in here um all kinds of stuff so there's always something happening 
It really seems that people are uh, very excited, perhaps more excited than average than normal, to get out again, to get out and experience live theater, live entertainment, live music, live anything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, we're seeing a lot of support, Um, you know, especially for local talent. We're seeing a lot of support. People really want to support any type of performer that kind of, you know, lost, their lost their opportunity to perform during the pandemic. So um, it's been really, really excellent. And like I said, encouraging for us as promoters and for all of the artists to see everybody it, come back in droves. It seems, Lisa, that, you know, and, and I've been on the planet long enough to know that live music, it seems to come and go in cycles. Like there's, there's diehard places that stay open, keep it alive in any city, and then they kind of die off. Then they come back, then they die off. Are we, especially in a post-pandemic world, are we, in, are we more into seeing live stuff now? Do you think it will help bring these places back? Yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah, I think people are wanting to gather again and wanting to experience things in person again. So, yeah, I'm hoping, um, you know, our existing and new music venues that, that are popping up and the ones that we run, I'm hoping we'll continue to see all of these great people and great community come out and, uh, and support them. But, yeah, I think it's just a very positive outlook right now. Website we can go to to find out more about what you're doing. Yeah, um, www.freshupfest.ca or soniconion.ca, um, and you can find out about everything that we do. Lisa LaRocca with us, organizer of the Fresh Up R&B Festival, director of operations at Sonic Onion, and, of course, Fresh Up R&B Festival happening Mills Hardware, 95 King Street, starting at 6 tonight and running all weekend. Lisa, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Thanks for joining us. I'm Scott Thompson, Matt Taylor on the board. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open on this All Request Friday, 905-645-3221. Talk, text, leave us your last word. Matt playing the Beatles, uh, paperback writer from 1966. Listen to this. The Beatles had their 10th consecutive number one single with paperback writer backed with rain which means it was on the other side of the 45 the track marked uh the track is marked by a boosted bass guitar sound throughout uh john lennon wanted to know why uh, the bass on wilson pickett records was way better than the bass on beatles records so they torqued it up a notch there you go uh the 10th number one single uh consecutive in a row for the beatles unbelievable when you think about it all right uh as i said jump into the fun love to hear from you hammerhead trivia coming up one hour from now uh the stories that we're watching uh right now uh don't forget hey, tie cats home opener tonight montreal is in town uh more on that coming up uh, a little later on also uh cursive writing coming back we're gonna have Stephen lecce on education minister coming up after the first uh, 530 news cursive writing being reintroduced into uh the in mandatory uh in the elementary school system starting in grade three everybody thought and i remember when this happened because my kids got snagged in this during the dalton mcginty's days remember dalton mcginty was the teacher's premier uh, yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, so anyway, and that was the new math that is now gone. And uh, now this and everybody was, well, you know, we got the computers now back in 2006. We're typing with our thumbs. We got devices. We got phones. The kids don't need to write anymore. Not even understanding the relationship with physically writing and 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 literacy 
which which helps with reading, sentence structure, phonics, grammar, all of that stuff. So uh, finally, um, you know, the teenagers will now be able to sign their own name, which is uh, great news coming up. And and again, this was taken out of the curricular uh, curriculum back in 2006 by the McGinty government as they went on a new path with education. And uh, it seems like we're playing catch up now. So uh, there you have it. We'll talk to Stephen Lecce coming up after the 530 News. Uh, reading, writing, math, uh, the basics uh, coming back. Uh, because it's not just about the printed word or the written word on the page. It's how that contributes to a child's literacy over the course of their education. All right, uh, what else we got? Oh, more information coming out in regard to uh, the Titan sub. We're going to talk about that coming up moments from now. It's pretty much moved from a re- uh, rescue, search and rescue mission to a recovery. And now, of course, uh, cause and blame, what happens? And we're hearing words like uh, this was avoidable, uh, that this thing was not certified, it was unsafe, uh, and that the, uh, the company involved here was playing pretty much in the gray area with all of this and avoided uh, inspection certification and such because of the type of craft it was wasn't really considered a submarine or a ship so it falls under a different category of inspection and now many are saying that the whole thing was ill-advised and ill-fated uh, and and a misadventure that certainly was avoidable uh, and that uh, the more this craft went up and down and up and down uh, much like we saw with you know craft vehicles that are used to go up into space they get weaker uh, simply because of the change in in atmosphere the rapid change in atmosphere something that's sitting on the surface in you know an average temperature in warm water then you know is is sunk down four kilometers uh, where the pressure is is immense uh, the temperatures are freezing and uh, it's a completely different environment and then back and forth back and forth they say that that can cause cracks or structural flaws so uh, although uh, it, it may have been fine for the first couple of runs um, microscopic cracks and such can appear. So I was just watching reports on this that they can actually or may even build a replica of this and, 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 and do the certification after the fact. Uh, just to see where this goes moving forward and how it uh, shapes the industry. One expert said it's kind of like uh, when you're a kid and you're standing on an empty pop can, and if you do it carefully enough, you can stand on the pop tin and it will hold your weight. And then as your friend comes up and just ding with the finger and puts that dent, boom, down it goes. That's the structural uh, uh, integrity that is needed, and when that dents or, brain, or breaks or dimples, uh, the whole thing just collapses. So we'll talk about that coming up uh, moments from now. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. All requests Friday. You want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite? Call Matt, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. You can join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after uh, the 5 o'clock news. We've all been following the story about the Titan sub, uh, submersible that was uh, going down to uh, view the Titanic. Uh, obviously, the crew of five uh, all perishing with uh, after an implosion.
And now it sort of goes from a search and rescue to a recovery mission and also the discussion of cause and blame. Um, and, and we're hearing words like unavoidable, this was unavoidable, this was not certified, it was unsafe, ill-fated, ill-advised, uh, as, you know, we try to digest exactly what has happened. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, uh, expertise in entrepreneurship, and is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm, I am, and I'm glad to be with you. Were these entrepreneurs playing in the gray zone, Marvin? Uh, well, it's too early for me to be able to tell you that. We need to let the investigation play out. But I will say that in the in the world at large, there are people who cut corners. And if you're a consumer, we tend to rely on government agencies, what have you, to pass rules, have inspections to guarantee our safety. But first and foremost, as the Romans said 2,000 years ago, e caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. I've traveled around the world. I've been offered a chance to ride a camel in Egypt or walk across a swayback bridge joining a couple of cliffs. And first and foremost, I have to make the decision, does this look safe? Does this street food in Vietnam look like it's going to be mm. safe to eat? And I have passed up opportunities because I am not convinced of the safety. So I, I don't think any of us should rely on third-party people to, to guarantee our safety, we've got to look at these things and decide for ourselves. Now, it's possible these people took the Titan sub that they were using and, and put it to an extreme level that it wasn't certified for. And, and if it is, they should be facing the consequences of those actions, lawsuits and what have you. But it's also possible this was truly an accident, a short circuit, something crossed that shouldn't have. But if I'm putting my life at risk I have to feel confident from the beginning that it's worthwhile taking that risk. You talked about eating food in Vietnam or going across a, a rope bridge or such between two uh, uh, cliffs or what have you. People, uh, while traveling, will may or should ask themselves, "This is, is this Canada, a different set of regulations, but this is the United States and Canada. You would think, or most would think, well, yeah, we're covered with that, No. Well, you might think that, but remember, you're in international waters. You're outside of any country's jurisdiction. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. actually know where this company was incorporated, and I don't quite know where its base of operations were. Yes, there may have been Americans involved. And in fact, again, in an odd twist of fate, the CEO of the company is one of the five people whose lives mm -hmm. were lost on that Titan sub. But I just, I just don't think you can ever rely on someone else for your personal safety and security you've mm. got to make that decision yourself and if, if you're not comfortable don't do it should we many are saying you know what it's time to stop this sort of thing or uh, or come up with new sets of regulations new sets of guidelines so for this type of craft it sort of falls between a boat and a submarine whatever uh, and right. a remotely operated vehicle. Um, is this about uh, strengthening the regulations or just saying, you know what, it's enough, let's not go down there anymore? Well, I think what it is, it's about people pushing the limits. So uh, mm -hmm. we're talking about diving to the depths of the ocean to see the Titanic, but you also know that nice people like Elon Musk are promoting space tourism, where you get yep. into a capsule and you blast off. And I'm going to tell you, one is just as unsafe as the other, you know, you're up yeah. in high atmosphere 
10 miles above the earth, 20 miles above the earth. If something goes wrong, there is no rescue mission for you at that point. And so as we humans invent technologies that push boundaries, oftentimes we get ahead of a legal framework or a regulatory framework behind it. And this is just a reminder that we've got to have the two moving in concert. So if uh, originally it was uh, an explorer like Bob Ballard who discovered the Titanic, he used remote uh, uh, submersibles. In other words, there were no humans involved. And then when they did get humans involved, they had specially, uh, specially designed craft to make it happen. We're now moving to the point that this is deep ocean tourism or in the other case, space tourism. Right. I think at that point, the government needs to think about, well, how do we regulate these things? So uh, you know, exp- exploration discovery is one thing. Uh, taking lots of money and taking tourists down, completely different story. Will you? Th- do you think we're going to see that sort of thing here? Because obviously this isn't going away. Same thing with space travel. And you have to ask yourself, what happens with Elon Musk once you cross that line from discovery to, hey, we're just doing this to raise money for fun, for, for business? For fun or more likely for profit. So, you know, again, to your point, Scott, I think to the extent we're going to try to turn this into a regular business, in this case, a tourism business. Now, you can call it adventure tourism or eco-tourism, whatever you like. Mm -hmm. But I I think we've got to think of a framework around this. We we can never guarantee anybody's safety. I can get on a plane tomorrow and the plane can crash. But what we ask is that plane operators take reasonable precautions. So we've set safety standards, what have you, that we feel are reasonable. There can always be extraordinary circumstances outside of that. And I think we're going to have to do the same thing here. And I think flip side of this, if you happen to be have somebody who's got an extra million dollars or two million or five million and you don't know what to do with it and you think adventure tourism is the way to go, check it out. Be sure that you are comfortable with the kind of risks involved. I'm just not clear in this case that these people really thought enough about what they were trying to do here and really understood the risks involved. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, expertise in entrepreneurship, talking about the Titan submersible and the businesses moving forward. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. I will. You do the same. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us a last word. Join us about a half an hour now from Hammerhead Trivia. Or Hammerhead Trivia. And don't forget, all requests Friday. You want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite. There you go, Rick. Uh, feel free. Love to hear from you. You might remember last week we were talking, including uh, just recently, with a lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, uh, Tim Danson, in regard to Paul Bernardo being moved from a maximum to a medium security prison. Not only was this done without anybody uh, or any sort of explanation as to why it was happening, uh, the family's often the last to know in these situations. And you might remember uh, Safety Minister Marco Mendez Chino, he was surprised when all this went down, despite uh, corrections saying, no, we told you guys three months ago, and again, just a couple of days before it all happened. Well, all of that has raised the ire of the families of Tim Bosma and Laura Babcock, and they're demanding answers from the federal government after multiple murderer Mark Smitch was moved to a medium security prison. This happened a couple of years ago. 
uh, and, you know, we don't care. I don't know. But let me ask you this. If Paul Bernardo is moved, I guess what? We might as well pack the bags for Dellen Millard because he's next. And my goodness, are, are they not the same? Uh, let's bring in Alex Pearson, host of the Alex Pearson Show, 640 Toronto. She covered the Tim Bosma murder trial for us here at 900 CHML and knows the case inside and out. Alex, you know, it, it must be so frustrating for these families that, you, you know, this happened two years ago. You know, not much of a noise was raised. And now Bernardo gets uh, transferred. There's lots of noise and they're kind of left in the in the shadow of all of this. It, man, it's terrible. Yeah, it is. Um, it's heartbreaking, really. You get to know these families. And while I covered the Bosma matter, and I certainly got to know a lot and most of the details about Laura Babcock, I didn't actually cover that part of the trial. But the bottom line being that the families, once again, are in the spotlight. What's interesting in this case is that they, this happened two years ago. So we're dealing with a pandemic time. Everything was, you know, yeah. uh, very, very chaotic. But you know, the fact that, 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 this, that the families, the Babcocks and the Bosnians, that they don't speak out to me and they didn't bother to mention until, you know, they saw the reaction to the Bernardo. You know, the fact that they sit there in silence, isolated, in their pain, I think speaks mm. to a lot of what victims of violent crime go through in this country, where they feel like, what's the point of speaking up? Like, I sit here fighting for justice. Am I supposed to just say something more as if anyone will listen? Because no one listens. And so I'm glad they finally did speak up, because I was absolutely floored because i've been to beaver creek institute this is a mandatory or i'm sorry the min, min, medium minimum security facility that smitch is at and i don't understand how a guy who killed two people boasted about it sang songs about it was an absolute piece of garbage for what he did the degradation that he inflicted upon laura and tim is so beyond that why does he get to go to an institution that is, and I've been to it because the last time I went to it, Scott, a couple of prisoners had walked away. So I went up to do the story. And when I get there, my, oh, my, what a lovely place to go. And Gravenhurst mm. in Muskoka, no fencing, no nothing. You, you just get your own little dorm and you can cook and you can hang out. I mean, it is, it is not the country club, but it's pretty damn close. And he's in there five years into his sentence. Are you, are you, into his, it's nuts to me. What's going on in this country? where the people that do the worst and most heinous crimes are getting any comfort. There's people I don't care about if they ever get a comfort again. Mark Smith is on that list. Dallin Millard is on that list. Paul Bernardo is on that list. Michael Rafferty, uh, Terry Lynn McClintock, they're on that list. And yet all of the people I just mentioned to you are all in better situations than they were a few short years into their convictions on, on murder. It's baffling to me. And again, if you're moving and transferring people like Bernardo out of maximum yeah. security prison, like how long before Dellen Millard? I mean, he might as, he uh-huh. might he might as well be there by the end of the week. You know what? I'm sure. You know, it would not surprise me. Um, you know, we're talking about two thrill killers. That's what yeah. Mark Smith and Dellen Millard are: spoiled losers who had a lot of money at their fingertips, had nowhere to go, but caused a lot of trouble and a lot of pain. I. I I would not be surprised one bit if Millard at some point is once again, you know, getting comforts. But I think we have to really start to make, you know, some decisions in this country. Some polling was done just last week with the National Post, and I think it was Angus Reid, but I could be wrong. It could be Leger. Nonetheless, it was so overwhelming, Scott, of Canadians 
who want change to the justice system, who see our justice system as a joke, whether it's the catch and release bail programs we have, whether it's people who do violent crimes and get sentenced to, you know, not a life sentence, we call it a life sentence, but now we're finding out that they're not even really serving the hardest time possible um, years in. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what is corrections goal here? Are they trying to prep these people some point to be released? I mean, are we going to be honest about that? Because you don't move a guy like Bernardo to medium security unless you've got some plan in the next few years to give him maybe a few day passes. That's, and I like, think you, are we, you, where are we going here? You, you hit the nail on the head. Not honest about it. Not transparent. Because not again, I think most. I think. I think most Canadians, um, yeah, you know, if you can rehabilitate somebody, go for it. And, and you know, good luck. And, and many and many are. But th- this is a category of criminal where they're using words like psychopath, dangerous offender. These are the worst of the worst. Like, you know, I understand as a correction facility and as a psychologist, psychiatrist, you want to work with the people, you want to make them better. I get it. And and go to town. But there's a group of individuals here that are in a different category. And why are we treating people like the Bernardos of the world as if they're, uh, I don't know, uh, a shoplifter? They have some redeeming quality if we just dig Yes, like they're going to change. Yeah, it's crazy to me. But, you know... Corrections and the parole board, these are agencies. They operate on their own. They have no system in place for transparency. So we don't know these things. It's none of our business, Scott. And, and on top of it, there's no accountability. So we're never told about this. So no one ever actually has to report or talk to anybody. And as we saw with the Bernardo matter, what you end up getting is a whole bunch of finger pointing and, oh, yes, we'll do better and blah, blah, blah. People are tired of this. And, and you know, it, it, these are cases I cover. And so what I tell you and the listeners is just the stuff I can talk about. It's not what the actual depravity of the crime is. And so I think people have to understand yeah. that these people, these the Rodney Staffords, the, the Priscilla de Villiers, the, um, the Bosmas, the Babcocks, the, it goes on and on and on as to what they go through year in, year out. All they want is justice. And every year of their life and every day of their life when their loved one is taken away is now spent in a hole a very isolated hole, just trying to, to make sure some kind of, of sentence is, is actually a punishment is, 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 is put out. And time and again we hear, whether it's the Frenches and the Mahawkis having to pay a legal bill for trying to get information, oh, or whether man. it's, you know, Rodney Stafford finding out nine months after the fact that his child's killer is in a native healing lodge and she's not even native. It just, we need change and we need accountability and we deserve it because that's how the system's supposed to work. It's supposed to be transparent, and for justice to be done, it needs to be seen to be done. And these days, Scott, it does not look like it's being done. No wonder over 80% of us want change. Uh, Alex Pearson with us, host of the Alex Pearson Show, 640 Toronto, covered the Tim Bosma murder trial uh, for us, and of course the Bosma family as well as the Babcock family speaking up about Mark Smitch being moved two years ago from a maximum I, to a medium. Are you up against the clock? Yeah, go ahead. Really quick, real quick. Look, these privacy laws, Laura Babcock and Tim Bosma, Tori said they didn't get a, they didn't get privacy rights. Why on earth do these you know killers? Why are we so yep. worried about yep. what their privacy rights on when these people their lives are, are everywhere for people to comb through? It's just it, we are backwards in this country.
It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Thanks for joining us. I'm Scott Thompson. On the board, Matt Taylor, always looking for your request and your last word, 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Well, all you have to do, speaking of news, is watch or listen or look, and you will see that it pretty much every town city across the country is having uh, an ongoing crisis with housing, shelter, uh, whether it's tent encampments, what have you, um, and and there just doesn't seem to be any short-term solution in sight. Let's bring in Jim Dunn, Department of Health, Aging, and Society, Faculty of Social Sciences, McMaster University, studying living communities as they undergo transformations and how to build environments uh, affect the mental and physical health. Uh, and joining us now, Jim Dunn. Jim, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm well. Thanks for the invitation, Scott. Obviously, Jim, there's no easy solution here. We're not going to find it in a quick little interview. Uh, but it seems there's a long-term solu- uh, a long-term problem here where we don't have enough housing. That's obviously going to take time. But it seems the bigger issue is the short-term solution, whether it's tent encampments or what have you. Is there any quick fix here? That's some. I mean, obviously, it's going on across the country. If there was, we'd be doing it. But what are your thoughts? How do we move forward on this? Well, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Yeah, there's no uh, short-term solution, but there's, I think, a number of things that we could be throwing at this um, to make something of a difference. So, you know, one of the big ones is just in terms of immediate needs. Um, we ha- we do have a number of people who are unhoused and uh, who have significant support needs. And so we know that they're really well-tested models uh, for delivering supportive housing. And if we could, uh, I, the challenge actually is not so much in finding units for those folks. A good example is, you know, City Housing Hamilton right now is in the process of renovating some units that hadn't been used. And it's not so much finding the units, it's actually coordinating the supports and getting the supports, which have to come from prim- primarily the healthcare sector. And those two things are very siloed. So if we could actually do something, say, to the tune of 100, 150 people who we could offer, who have very high needs, we could offer supportive housing, that would actually ease the pressure in a very short term on the homeless support services that we have. So we do have a shelter system that functions very well. Most people need it just for a short period of time. They visit it once and then they're never seen again, but they're really quite overwhelmed with just the overall demand and also the demand of people with high needs. So how do you how do you solve that issue of those of those that are most in need? Um, You know, we're obviously seeing tent communities and such pop up. Um, How do we bridge that gap? How where, where do we put the people who are unhoused, as you say? Well, one of the things we would need is some senior government uh, investment in this, and I'm thinking the provincial government in particular, because you know it's not like the the healthcare sector is exactly exactly flush with additional cash to be able to take this on, in addition to all of the other responsibilities that they have. Um, and then we would also need some support for the housing sector. But the thing is, in principle, this could save money. So basically, we know from these supportive housing programs, uh, from rigorous research that's been done is that uh, for high needs clients, the cost of the program is actually less than the cost of the services that those clients stop using. And here we're talking about social services, primarily criminal justice services, and also health services. So basically, in a sense, it could pay for itself. The problem is we don't have a system because of this rigid siloing. We don't have a system where those savings can be realized and plowed into the housing. So we need essentially some stimulus from a senior level of the government to pay for it for a 
you know, a few years in order to get things moving and then develop the, the mechanisms where those savings can be plowed back into the continued operation of that supportive housing. So you say we have the units, it's just they're in need of repair. Well, I mean, that's an example of one place where we could get housing units from. City We've got a massive, has this is a, a massive units, problem. I've forgotten the, I've forgotten the exact yeah. number. Um, but they may, they actually approved funding to uh, to bring those units back online because they had been in disrepair and uh, weren't ready for occupancy. And so they're in the process of doing that right now. What do we do about uh, tent encampments? There was chatter in Hamilton about uh, servicing the sites and such to so to make life more bearable. Um, but then, you know, 90 days from now, it's going to be cold. So w- w- how do you solve that? How do you, what's the, sh- uh, the, the, the short-term solution there while people wait for whatever to be done? Yeah, I mean, that one, I think, uh, you know, I think there's a moral obligation to, to provide uh, supports to people uh, to try and connect them to housing as much as possible to try to, con- to connect them to shelter services. I mean, the challenge is the shelter services are now overwhelmed um, just because the rental market is under such pressure. Um, so I, I think that the city is taking the right approach, which is to identify, you know, what kind of immediate needs can we do, can we um, uh, address in the short term uh, while people are unhoused and living in, in, in tent encampments. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that there has to be a greater effort at some level at a more senior level to say, we need a long-term solution for this and we need dedicated funding because the fact is, you know, the supportive housing does work. It does have these benefits, uh, you know, of a net benefit generally to government services. During the global, uh, so let's get moving. During the global pandemic, oh. uh, when hospitals were being overrun, we saw, uh, you know, field hospitals, this sort of thing put up. Why can't we do something like that? Is that an answer? Is that an option? Because again, uh, everything you're saying is great, but there's a step between there and getting them out of, uh, parks and tent encampments and such. Is that an answer? Well, again, I think what I worry about, like, is that, I'm not entirely convinced of that. Again, the the issue to my mind is not so much same getting with the, access same to with the, the units. Same with the it's tent encampments. More about the supports. So would it be the same with the tent encampments? Servicing them is that worthwhile? Is that a solution? Well, it's a very very short term uh, band aid solution for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, it introduces like an ongoing. Um, well, let's think. Let's compare. You know, as you say, like uh, a, a tent that uh, for that they had during the pandemic for the surplus. Uh, surge over uh, in hospitals. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is then you have to bring in water, sir. You know, have to bring water, sewage, a yeah. whole host of other things that are yeah. already provided in uh, accommodations that are meant to be housing, like apartments right, right, and apartment right. buildings. So, and you still haven't solved the problem of the additional supports that the high needs folks need. Jim Dunn with us, Department of Health, Aging, and Society, Faculty of Social Sciences, McMaster University. Not an easy solution. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Terrific. Thanks. It's 900 CHML. It's 980 CHML. Let me get this right. 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word at 905-645-3221. All right, we were, we've been talking about uh, B-C-18 
and uh, the whole idea was to bring, um, I guess, some justice to the media system and in in material content that is being used on the internet, making sure people are getting paid for it and what have you. So um, the government introduced Bill C-18. The law will force tech giants like Meta, Google, Instagram to pay news outlets for posting their journalism on their platforms. Well, or they could just decide they're not going to carry the content and block it, which is what they have done. Uh, is that what the intention was? Uh, was this a good idea? Have we gone too far? Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin, Senior Fellow, Massey College, former Director of Journalism, University of Toronto, uh, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I'm fine. I hope you are too, Scott. So, Bill, or so, Jeff, what was this bill supposed to do, and is this the reaction the government was expecting? Uh, I'm sure it was not the reaction the government was expecting. Uh, the same thing has happened in Australia and parts of the European Union, where a law was passed which would force these large media giants to compensate news organizations for using their content. The problem is one of proportion, because in Canada, we are much more reliant on American content than they are in Europe um, or even in Australia, where they're maybe more reliant on on British content than American. Um, I think that they're playing hardball, uh, these, these large media companies, with the Canadian government, hoping that people will say, uh, I want my MTV or I want my I want my Google or I want my Facebook and force the government to compromise in some way. And I think that's possible because nothing's going to happen for six months. Uh, the bill is passed, but it won't come into effect for six months. In that time, negotiations will go on, but it's going to be very interesting. Even the public broadcasting system, PBS in the United States said, you know, unless we get compensated for for the further use of our content, we may stop allowing Canadian uh, distributors to play Downton Abbey. Um, it's going to it, there, there's a lot at stake here. Um, you know, with is this about just cutting and pasting the content? Because I thought that. You know, as long as you post, for example, a media outlet's link, uh, if people want that information, they got to go to the the news company's website to get it anyway. So isn't that helping? Well, it should in theory. But, for example, um, I did an interview on TV Ontario and Facebook picked that up, but they're not paying TV Ontario anything for that interview. Um, but isn't that link, but is, are they actually playing it on their platform or you click a link on their platform and it directs you back to the TV Ontario, uh, which then they can char- charge as a hit and gain advertising from? I think that is what should happen, but often it doesn't. So there are a lot of loose ends to this. And I think that what's happening now is that uh, the, there's a certain amount of government, in my opinion, government overreach on this. Uh, I'm not sure that they expected that this was the sort of response that they would get from uh, from big media corporations. So I think we're sort of in uncharted territory at this point. Should these, uh, should uh, Google, uh, Meta, all of these companies, should they be paying for this content, or 
as they say, are you getting it, are the news, traditional news sites getting it anyway, because it is going back to them via a link and a hit on their website. So um, will Google then pay for this? I mean, I, can you see that happening? Uh, not at this point. I think what's going on now is that these large media companies, Facebook, Google, Instagram, understand that there is an economic problem with Canadian media. Canadian journalism does not pay for itself in the way that it once did. Uh, And we're seeing this now with today's announcement that uh, Bell Media is going to get out of the local local news business. Yeah. Because they can't make, they claim that they can't make enough money to continue to have local newscasts. I mean, this is a, this, to me, I'm shocked, I'm shocked having gotten my start in local news. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, and I think that the future, in fact, as you and I have discussed, will be the, the priority of local information in order to create a more effective ecosystem of media in this country. But to take a whole platform away from people is yeah, really a yeah. disservice, I think, to to who we are as a people and our community and our democracy. So um, traditional media is failing and uh, the government is looking to these other newer forms of media to bail them out. We're really it, I'm not sure it's justified, is it? Well, I, I'm not sure it is either. I agree with you. The other thing that's really complicating this is that there was a a, an email sent out today, which was picked up here and there, and needs verification, uh, which is that the government would like to see all media encouraged to report on issues that the government thinks is important, such as gender oh issues, indigeneity. Oh my. Jeff, mean, this is getting out of hand. Well, this, to me, is an intrusion of government into the newsrooms of the nation. Um, yeah, and I think that, that that we have to all take a deep breath and sort this out so that that journalism provides the social role in creating a civic culture in this country, which it's not doing as as we intended in our naivete as as young bucks, you and I. Well said. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Uh, Canada, uh, or rather uh, Google, Meta, Facebook, going to block ca- uh, news uh, content from or for Canadian viewers if they don't get this settled. Jeff, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. Always looking for your last word, 905-645-3221. All right, do you have teenagers who don't know how to write their own name? Do you have a teenager who doesn't know how to write? Because uh, if they're like, or they've had to learn on their own. Uh, do you have a teenager who, when you ask them to sign a birthday card, it looks like a seven-year-old? Well, you're going to be really excited about this because back in 2006, the government made a terrible mistake and decided to drop cursive or writing from the curriculum. And the reason being, and it makes sense, you know, we got the devices now, we're all doing it with our thumbs, we're forgetting how much writing cursive literally reinforces literacy, sentence structure, grammar, uh, phonics, whatever. And I can see it now 
because my kids are in the cohort that missed out on this and had to learn it on their own. And thank God, common sense is coming back to government. And Ontario is now bringing this back into elementary schools starting this fall. Let's bring in Education Minister for the province of Ontario, Stephen Lecce. He's here now. Stephen, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. Good to be back. You know, Stephen, I remember when this all happened and thinking, what, am I just an old fart here? I don't get this. I don't understand it. But now my kids are teenagers, and I've seen what they've had to go through to catch up and such because uh, they're part of the cohort that, that missed all of this. So tell yeah. us what you're doing and what your reasoning is for doing this. Well, I look, I think experts agree that it was a big failure, the former Liberals, to have removed this as mandatory learning. I mean, we're trying to create a competitive advantage for young people when they graduate to be able to articulate, to express, uh, and to more seamlessly write is in itself a life skill that's going to help set young people up for success. I mean, every expert has suggested, the evidence suggests that cursive writing is, is but one way to help support and stimulate seamless creativity, builds vocabulary, and I think perhaps most importantly, uh, it's a transferable skill that they could use in life, in their professions, and certainly in education. So the data's there. Parents also said it themselves, saying, what's going on? I mean, this seemed to have worked for generations. Phonics is another case study where, for literally generations, the evidence was absolutely clear. It was helping to improve reading instruction. You know, we all remember the jingle, the hooked on phonics and you know, I, I yeah. love that generation where I benefited from that. And by the way, I was one of the last generations to get cursive writing, and I'm 36. But there's a whole generation of young people who lost out on that. It's no different than financial literacy not being in the curriculum or fundamental skills. And what I'm trying to do from an overall mission is infuse the curriculum with the knowledge that helps young people succeed. Enough of this theoretical stuff, more hands-on, transferable skills, and real-life application. And I'll tell you, employers say to me all the time, I need my the next generation of thinkers, of entrepreneurs, of innovators. These young women and men, they need to be able to think creatively and to persuade and to debate civilly and to drive and, and communicate uh, their messages. And one of the great challenges is the inability to do so. So I think this is going to help. It's going to really help stimulate that intellectual thought and create... Um, frankly, a more literate young citizenry, because we've got one in three kids graduating our high schools today, according to Dyslexia Canada, that are not at the uh, reading um, comprehension level for their grade. And that's a serious problem. And I just think anyone who wants to defend the status quo will have to explain to me why we should sit back and hope for the best when so many kids are behind. Well, many will use, well, technology, Stephen. We've got this now. We don't need that. And and as you've expressed in the, in your in your memo and such, that Right. It's not just about writing your name. This this is this teaches critical thinking. It does. And I mean, what I'm trying to do is is really in strengthen the ability of a young person to to be taught how to think critically. One of the so fundamental areas of priority in the new language curriculum is critical thinking skills. What I want is young people to be able to, to conclude, deconstruct arguments challenge arguments civilly and in a spirited way, but to learn how to think critically, not what to think. That's an important point. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second thing is, we're also teaching elements of like digital media literacy, which frankly, okay, fair enough, in 2006, maybe it wasn't as big, 
it was big, but it wasn't as big. But now I sort of think, look, you've got to understand how online media is relevant. You need to know how to navigate online environments. You need to know how to use uh, all the online systems with a greater emphasis on privacy and cyber protection. And I believe in a world of disinformation, misinformation, and all types of stuff we mm. read online, young people need to know what is a credible source and what is not. It's like there's actually a democratic principle to safeguard our democracy if young people know exactly, um, you know, where they're getting their information. And look, we see foreign influence. We see a variety of examples where that type of knowledge, that digital literacy, that civic literacy is fundamental, let alone the economic benefits of having young people who know how to create online and how to, uh, mm -hmm. frankly, use digital literacy as a, as a means to reach people. So it, it is a whole overhaul. And we have support across the board from every expert in between. But parents are the voices, I thought, that really were ignored along the way because they all said in 2006 when the former Liberals put out their decision, this was the wrong thing. And what's fascinating is in 2002, a report was commissioned by the government of the day that explicitly said that, um, you know, that, that reading instruction must be evidence-based. And more importantly... It speaks to the fact that the the recommendations made in that 2002 report with respect to phonics, for example, were ignored. And so I can't go back. All I can tell families in Ontario is I yeah. hear you loud and clear, the experts, and we're going to get this right. And what's, what's positive, Scott, is that we're adding 700 of the best specialized literacy educators in the province. We're hiring 700 specialized literacy educators and uh, for September, so that every child who's behind will get an will get some additional support to get them on track. The other thing here is, and just I know I'm going to wrap it up here, but is that we're actually going to be introducing a new screening tool. Every single senior kindergarten, grade one and two child in Ontario, everyone, like we're talking about like hundreds of thousands starting this September, are going to get a reading screening assessment. We're literally going to assess every child based on a common screening tool to understand where your kid is at. And if they're behind, we're going to let you know that. And more importantly, we're going to have... And the result of that screener will be on your report card. We're the only jurisdiction in Canada to be doing this, uh, that to be that expansive, that large. And I think it's the right thing to do because I know a lot of young parents who hold their greatest anxieties of their kids' social skills, motor skills, mm. basic literacy skills are behind. And I think, look, you know, that's not an insurmountable problem. I appreciate the angst, so let's fix it with a new curriculum, with a screening tool to measure success, and with new supports to help those kids that are behind to get back on track. So it's it is a big it is a big overhaul, but it's it's desperately needed. Yeah, to me, you know, dropping cursive or writing just because technology is advancing is like, well, I'm going to learn a new language, uh, but rather than having another language, I'm going to lose the old one that I did before. So instead of having two, I'm still going to have one. It just doesn't make sense. I want to ask you about something else, Stephen, because we're running we're running commercials for the ETFO, and they come on and they're saying that thousands of education and uh, educators and staff are going to be cut. That uh, Doug Ford is cutting the education system without telling anybody. What is your response? to those ads well I, I will just say with respect to this curriculum i know that they've long opposed this change as they have with much of our curriculum reforms i know change is difficult for some but at the end of the day this is about children and this is about doing the right thing and so you know uh, we have to rise to the challenge to support children based on the evidence i mean i get it you know you'd want to 
use a lesson plan from years past because it's sort of the curriculum has been the case since 2006. But we're going to have to step it up because kids have never faced more regression since the pandemic, you know, in literally a generation. So we all have to work together. What I will say simply is we have added literally over $600 million for the coming school year. We're hiring 2,000 of their teachers, 2,000 additional educators. Um, and we're continuing to invest to build new schools and renovate schools in Hamilton and frankly across Ontario. We have increased the funding because we know it matters. But what I would also say is while I have, we have as a government or a premier leadership increased the investment, let me tell you, we have to also increase the expectations out of the system because we've never spent more. We're spending 27% more than the former Liberals did in the Ministry of Education. And i got to ask folks out there, could you point to these immeasurable improvements? So, yes, hmm. money matters. People matter. But so does expectation. It's why I brought forth a bill that just passed last month, the Better Schools and Student Outcomes Act, because I believe we need greater accountability on student achievement. These, these funds need to get into the classroom. 80 cents the dollar today goes to compensation for staff. So, look, I know for the last 36 of my 36 years on earth, I've heard this criticism from the mm-hmm. teacher unions, the government of the day, NDP, Liberal, PC, and we've heard it all. It's too little need more. It's never been worse. And I don't, frankly, diminish the challenges in the classroom. I know they're there for mental health, to learning loss. I mean, I'm there. I, I, I think we're all very sensible on this, but we've stepped up the investment. We've stepped up the hiring of staff. There's 7,000 mm-hmm. additional education workers between teachers and EAs and ECs under our PC government. That's not up for debate. They don't challenge that point because they know it because their membership has grown as a consequence. But the yeah. bottom line is we're going to continue to do what's right, but we're also going to, you know, at times disagree. Look, I have to respectfully disagree with unions. I abolished hiring in Ontario that used to be based to hire a new teacher on union seniority. Now, the unions love that principle because they got to control hiring. I believe the best educator, based on their qualification mm. and merit, should get the job. So I abolished the hiring practice of seniority, and I replaced it with qualification and competence. Yes, the unions didn't like that. And, I, you know, I don't, I'm not here to pick a fight, but I'm here to stand up for children. Yeah, and if yeah. they had that interest of kids first, they wouldn't have fought me on that. So my point simply is, look, we could coexist. We Let's agree where we can. Let's work together where we can. We have a new curriculum. Educators are expected to learn it. We're going to provide tons of professional development. I know they will do their job. I know they're going to rise to the challenge. And I'd rather just, you know, like when we're talking about kids learning loss and mental health, I wish they could just focus on the kids mm. instead of on political attacks because, like, we don't have time for this and I don't have a ton of time for this. i got to focus on getting kids back to school in September in a stable, normal environment. And I want to yeah. thank the teachers, thank the kids, thank the parents because, honestly, we've had a good year relative to the last many. And I'm grateful for that, Scott. So let's just keep going, keep working, and I assure you we're going to keep funding and increasing the supports in education. That's our premier's commitment to the kids of Ontario. Stephen Lecce with us, Minister of Education, Province of Ontario. Good news. Our kids are going to learn how to write again. Stephen, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Have a good day. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you if you've got a last word in you. Matt is standing by, 905-645-3221. Scott Radley coming up after the, uh, after the Scott Radley Show, after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, well, well, uh, yeah, damp, moist, whatever it is. It's, uh, it's weekend of, in the summertime, which means it has to rain, right? <laughs> yeah, really. All right, uh, this isn't getting a lot of news, but I think it should because my kids were caught in this cohort. 
Uh, we just had Stephen Lecce on, yes. education minister. And thank goodness, like my I just cannot believe this decision was even made way back when. But in 2006, the McGinty government, because we were so into technology, thought it would be good to remove writing, cursive, from um, uh, from the curriculum. And now we have a whole pile of teenagers, adults, who, you know, if they sign a card, it looks like an 8-year-old, uh, including my kids who have had to learn it themselves or, over or, the years. Or a physician writing a prescription. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or signing a passport, anything like that. And, and, you know, it's amazing how short-sighted this was, completely non-scientific driven, because studies coming out saying learning this uh, builds critical thinking, other huge literary, literacy skills, whether it's grammar, uh, phonics, uh, sentence structure, what have you. Um, and, and now here we are bringing it back. Common sense is prevailing. But, man, I, I just don't know how we get caught. It's kind of like the new map. Where the hell is that now? Uh, so, the, you know, Scott, it's interesting. We're going to talk about this. I, I have a very limited show today because the Ticats have their, uh, home opener yes. today and pre pregame show starts at six 30. But in the time before then, we're going to be opening the phones on this one because I think a lot of people have a lot of opinions on this one. And, and here's the thing. We spent how long listening to people say, you know what we really need in schools? We really need fiscal education. We need people to learn how to look after their money. And it took forever for that to happen. It took forever to make that happen. And then we said, well, we need some other things. I mean, we got rid of things like home ec, which I understand home ec had a stereotype to it and everything else, but we, we got, now it's called food. My kids in it. All right. But we, we got, we, we said a lot of schools said, well, we don't need things like shop because everybody should go to university. Yep. And now we're realizing, wait a second, not everybody should go to university. And you know what? Some of those people, not just, I was going to say guys, I almost caught myself there, but those people who you realize are great with their hands and with doing, we need those people in our society. Wonder why there's a a trade shortage when you you shut down all the tech wings in schools. You think, but then we come out with, and I'm, look, I'm not against things like sex ed in school, but we come out with these elaborate, we put all of our effort into this and we leave out all these other things that are all also a part of our real life that we should be... I'm not saying don't have sex ed. I'm not saying that at all, but that's one thing, a real life application. We have other real life applications that we need. And thank goodness, I, in my mind, thank goodness in this case, they're bringing it back because I agree with you. This was idiotic to get rid of it. It was idiotic to get rid of this. And, and you know, it's, it's to think technology, that's like saying, well, you know what, we got to stop it all now because AI is going to write for us. Anyway, well, it's not teaching you how to critically think. It's not teaching you literacy. And it just, it just, to me, it's like learning an extra language and then forgetting the old one. Well, if that's that's the case, Scott. I can tell you that in my life since high school, there have been maybe five occasions when I've had to speak French. So in a, if that's the if that's your example is what how we plot this chart out yeah. now, I should not have taken French in school because that was a complete waste of time for me. Or now, you, t- you take French and then you drop English. You know, I'll never speak English again. Right. Like, that's just dumb. It's I, another tool in the toolbox. I, I will. Let me tell you about how well I did French. One summer, I spent a summer volunteering uh, down in Papua New Guinea. And afterwards, we went to Tahiti, which is French Polynesia, the whole group yeah. of us. I was the only one who had ever taken French in our group. It was mostly Americans. I had to negotiate our fee for the ferry to get us from one island to the next. <laughs> My French was so excellent that I negotiated us from $50 a person to $500 a person. <laughs> I, thankfully, thankfully, the person was kind and went, wait, I think you're going backwards here. I think yeah. you have your numbers wrong. 
Uh, yeah, I, look, it, it's it's we need practical things. It's great to have yeah. all this stuff that says, well, this will be what the future is. Good. But also let's have the stuff, the foundational stuff that we can still use when the computers do take over. Foundation, perfect word. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Have a great weekend, Scott. All right, 558, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to give us the last word. Sam, via email, Ontario kids will now learn to write in school again. What a novelty. How many more mistakes do we need to correct? Signed, Sam. Keep right except to pass. Nighty night. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.